Live Creative Now, episode 110. Welcome to Live Creative Now with Melissa Dinwiddie, a weekly podcast to inspire you to create your art and share your work. Because that's how you will change the world. Hello, I am Melissa Dinwiddie, passion pluralite artist, happiness catalyst, and creativity instigator, and author of The Creative Sandbox Way, which you can find at an Amazon near you, here to address all your questions about living a full-color creative life. Whether you think of yourself as not artistic, not creative, which is a lie, or you think of yourself as an artist of any kind, writer, painter, dancer, musician, whatever, or anything in between. Not creative, or artist, or anything in between. No matter how you define yourself, feeding your creative hungers makes you feel more alive. It's how you change your life, and it's how you change the world. Today, I have another creative conversation for you. This is a conversation that I had with somebody back in the fall of 2015. This is the last, the last of those many conversations that I had way back when that I (laughs) put in a can because of perfectionist paralysis. It took me so long to get them out and share them with you. But I'm finally, finally done. And I have some new conversations that are going to be coming out very soon. I'm super excited to share those with you. But I am so excited to share this conversation with you today with Sharon Wildwind. Sharon is a Calgary mystery writer, as you will hear her say very soon. But she's a lot more than that. She is, like me, a passion pluralite. Now, I don't know that she would call herself that, but I definitely would. She creates in so many different ways. And I had so much fun hearing her talk about how she got started as a creative her relationship with creativity, all the way back from when she was a really, really little girl, super, super interesting, the messaging that she got as a kid from her mom, specifically around art and creativity was pretty intense. And in fact, it's really amazing that she ever created anything at all, as she got older. But you will hear that story, she tells that story, and how she got started and her relationship with creativity now, her approach to her work, her creative practice, her amazing art journals. She is such a different creative than I am. And yet, like me, she is a passion pluralite. I know Sharon because she has been part of my online community. She has been part of my creative sandbox community. She has participated in many programs that I have run and I have read her wonderful fiction and have been a, just a big fan of her creative work. So it was just a huge honor to have her on the show. 
So, without further ado, here is my conversation with Sharon Wildwind. So let me start by asking you, Sharon, if I were to meet you at a party or a conference or something, how would you introduce yourself? Hi, I'm Sharon. I'm a Calgary mystery writer. Ah, very succinct. I like that. So tell me about your mystery writing. I have one published series, which has five books in it. It takes place in the mid-1970s because my protagonists are Vietnam veterans. And it is about their adjustment to civilian life after they come back from Vietnam, complicated by the fact that they're always tripping over bodies. I've read one of your books, and that is not exactly literally, but almost literally what happened. (laughs) Yes, the the book that I read was a lot of fun. How did you get into writing mysteries? I've always read mysteries. They probably have been the kind of literature that I've read more than anything else. So I was really familiar with the genre. And I thought when I really wanted to start writing that I wanted something that had a framework because it would bring me into the writing and give me some structure. And mystery seemed a natural fit. I knew about them. I felt that I could write one. And I knew that there was a structure to the mystery that would give me some guidelines for uh, completing a first book. And had you, did you grow up writing? Did you grow up with creative expression? What did you do as a kid? I've written seriously, well, I've written since I was about 14 or 15, and then I've written seriously into my 20s. But outside of that, and it was really for my own benefit that I was writing, outside of that, we weren't an artistic family. I usually had an opportunity every summer to take an art course of some kind, but it was very structured. My mother would buy exactly the right amount of materials on the class sheet, and you were allowed to use those materials in the art class with the instructor present, because goodness only knows what kind of trouble you would get into if she wasn't there. And once you had finished that art class, you were done with it. So if I take a ceramic class, and now the ceramic class was over, I was not taking ceramics the next summer because I'd done that. And so next summer I had to take glass painting or something like that. So I grew up with the idea that art in terms of things like the visual arts and making art was restricted only to certain people. You had to be born an artist. You had to show real talent really early in life And then you might be allowed to study art as long as it didn't interfere with whatever it was doing so you could eventually make a living in life. Wow. That's some pretty intense messaging. Yeah. How, and I know, I know you, I know that you have not let that messaging stop you. So what's the story there? Well, I carried that attitude into about my late 20s. 
And one weekend I took a course that a friend of mine had put together and said, I need more people to come. Will you come? And I thought, oh, okay, fine. And it was a professor from the local university who was a textile professor. And she was developing her own patterns for soft stuffed, not really animals, but sort of like creatures kind of thing. So I thought, well, okay. I've got a young niece. I can make her a Christmas present with a little stuffed toy. Things will be fine. Went to the workshop, had a great time, made this little stuffed toy. And at the end of the workshop, she brought out this big white dress box. And she said, there's something else that I work on that I didn't really know if I should bring it, but I just wanted to show it to somebody and I'll need a model. So she picked me and said, would you come up and model this? And I went, Okay. And I went up there and she opened the box and inside was this absolutely gorgeous fantasy vest. It was made all out of white linen. It was white on white. It had embroidery, beads, braid, feathers. And she took it out of the box and she put it over my shoulders. And I literally felt the weight of that much art. And I said to myself, She designed this. She made it with her own hands. If she can do that, I can do that. And so that was kind of the aha moment that I realized that maybe art would be for me. Wow. I I did sewing first. I did fiber stuff. I was already doing a lot of sewing, but then I started to get You know, like I didn't have to follow the pattern exactly and so on. So I experimented with that for a long time. Years went by for about mm, 25 years went by and I was close to 50. I was working in nursing, which was a very demanding job. And I also was in nursing education. So in between the nonfiction that I was writing at work, which were the policy and procedure manuals, and the fiction that I was writing in the mysteries, I was pretty word overloaded. And I thought, I need something to relax that's visual. So I started checking uh, art books and craft books out of the library. And for years, all I did was read them. And then I would just, you know, read them and read them and read them. And one day I said, maybe I ought to try something that's in one of those books. Maybe I ought to make something. And that's how it all started. Wow. It's interesting, Sharon. I I actually got started making art. Well, I got started making art as a kid, but quit at age 13 when I decided that I wasn't an artist because all these other people were better than I was. So therefore I wasn't an artist. Anyway, 15 years after that, at about 28, I started making art also through library books. Mm -hmm. This is right before the internet started happening. (laughs) (laughs) All we had was librarians. (laughs) Wow. That's such a great story. I love that. So what kind of art were you making at that point? I started out uh, again with fiber. I started with quilting because I figured I already knew like, you know, cloth kind of thing. And I don't remember exactly when it was, but at one point I picked up a book called Creative Correspondence by Michael and Judy Jacobs. Jacobs. Yeah. I know I know Michael Jacobs. <laughs> oh, isn't he a love? He's I had wonderful. The honor of 
picking him up at the airport one time and taking him to a workshop in another city. And we had a wonderful conversation. Oh, I bet you did. Yeah, he's, he's great. I realized there was stuff that I could do with paper that I couldn't do with cloth. And so then I sort of rebranded myself mentally as a fiber and paper artist. And that's, that's what stuck. That's what I've been doing. Uh, if I have to pick some favorites, what I really love to make is I love to make things that are 3D, like boxes and shrines and uh, other kinds of things that, uh, that have dimension to them. And I really like things that aren't plastic. So I love cloth and I love natural fibers. I work with those almost exclusively. I like watercolors more than acrylics. I like air dry clay in preference to oven baked clay. So I like things that basically are easy to clean up. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I can appreciate that. Having worked in lots of different (laughs) media. (laughs) Well, I remember taking some, some, class or workshop at some point and or maybe it was a book I read I don't remember learning that paper is classified as a textile really uh, yes and and I, I don't know which uh you know classification system or whatever but it is considered technically it's considered a textile so you can you can, can you can count yourself a textile artist and fabric and paper is all under there. But what I'm interested in actually, mm-hmm. Sharon, is I like that you, you in your mind made that adjustment to, mm-hmm. you, had, you would come up with this identity. Clearly you would, you would embrace this identity as a fabric artist. And then you started working with paper. So you had to change that identity. Can you, can you, I want to dig into that a little bit. I think it all centers around making things and and very often it's a functional thing that I need something and I can't find what I want because it's either not available or it's too expensive or I can find one that's the wrong color, the wrong size, cheaply made and there's not much stuff that I can say to myself I couldn't ever, ever, ever make that. You know, shoes are probably on that list. I don't know I can make shoes, you know. But but almost everything else, if I stop and say, a human being designed this, a human being made this, there's no reason I can't. That's really cool. So is does that feel like the driver for you is finding like somebody made this I want to figure out how to do it myself or and I'm I'm really interested in sort of the absolute what's underlying it I like to know how cloth behaves I like to know how paper behaves I like to know what's the components of watercolor you know what does the pigment do in the mix what does the gum arabic do in the mix if I vary those proportions, what will happen? Suppose I add more pigment, what will it look like? Suppose I add more gum Arabic. Uh, I can tell you right now, it won't dry. I tried it. <laughs> <laughs> it's very sticky for a long, long time. But I really like those basic things. And lately, I've become really interested in the geometry under design that underpins design. So a lot of times I'll start with that. What materials have I got? What do those materials behave like? 
what do I need this piece to be able to do? And there are some times right now when I simply say to myself, what I need this thing to do is to be fun. You know, it doesn't have another meaning. I have no clue where I'm going to store it kind of thing, but it's fun and I'm going to make it. But most of the time, it's because I need a piece of clothing or I need a costume or I need a gift or I need a box to put the gift in. That's often where it starts for whatever I make. Mm. So so your creative expression has a very kind of pragmatic, um, I don't know, seed, I guess, maybe mm-hmm. it's the word. And it sounds like there's a lot of elements of curiosity and discovery mm-hmm. for you. Yeah. I, the, when I found the word Zaka, Z-A-K-K-A, which is a Japanese word for things that are made to look cute and pretty, and they're also functional. And so it's the idea that you don't have to choose between functionality and adorableness. I said, that's what I'm doing. I've been doing Zaka all my life. Oh, I have to make a potholder. Doesn't mean it can't be the world's cutest potholder. <laughs> <laughs> that's a new term to me. I've never heard that before. And I, I love it. That's really cool. Now you also were just saying that you do sometimes create things just because it's fun and it's mm-hmm. not necessarily functional. Do you find that you have a hard time giving yourself permission to do that? Not anymore. I think retiring helped because I have more time. I used to be on this little treadmill that involved working and writing and being with my family and sleeping. And that was sort of the first four that had to happen. And then I would say to myself, You know, if I have any time left over from those four, I'll play around. And I did have some time, and I did play around. But after I retired, then all of a sudden I had more time available, and so I could add just play in on that list. Sort of those then, I mean, just play replaced the working. Right. And I got to do this stuff. Yeah. Nice. Boy, that's... uh... I'm, I know a lot of people out there have, (laughs) have a huge desire to be able to replace that. I got to do this stuff with, this is just for fun. Mm -hmm. Very cool. So tell me about your writing. Do you have a regular writing practice? Yeah, I have at least two. One is I, it took me a while for Julia Cameron to sink in. I tried to read her about three times and I would just after a while close the book and go, no, not right now and put it away. And then a couple of years I come back and read it. And finally it took. And so I do keep uh, a journal and I've also started an art journal. So those morning pages that she talks about, that's one of the things that I do on a regular basis, not absolutely every single day, but almost always at least twice a week and usually more than that. And I don't necessarily do them in the morning. Sometimes I do them the last thing before I go to bed. But to do that 
recording, that tracking of what's happening in life. And, and, you know, like right now, we've just gone through a thing with the apartment that we live in that has to do with water coming off of the roof. And they've been in and the roof people have been here and, you know, now it's better and so on and so forth. But it was really funny. And so I started this roof people journal where they're up there now and this is what they're saying and this is the music that they're listening to and and can't these guys say three consecutive sentences without using an expletive and so on so yeah the morning pages is is my private stuff and and i really like it and then i try and write fiction two hours a day and those best two hours are usually between 10 in the morning and noon so if I get to that well and good, once in a while, I'll write it other times during the day. But I just know if I do, it's probably going to be crappy. And I'm usually doing it to a deadline and so on. So 10 to 12 every morning is my writing time. I love it. Yeah, it's um, something that I'm, I'm integrating more and more into my own life is that regular sort of modularly thinking and working according to where my energy level is in like where, when I'm most sort of creatively energetic and putting my creative work consistently at that time. And the, the people that I know who are producing the most creative work are the ones who have figured out how to do that and, you know, really make that commitment. I mean, everybody's different. You got to find out what works for you, but that a lot of people that I know have some kind of similar regular practice like that. Mm-hmm. So I know you do the, your, your art notebooks. Now, are they different from your morning pages? Yeah, very much so. The morning pages are not only what's going on, but my reaction to what's going on. What do I think about it? What do I feel about it? The art journals are much more collecting notes from other people trying a few experiments, you know, this works, this didn't work. Uh, Here's a a setup about how right-handers should work on a page. And here's left-handers, how they should work on the page sort of thing. So it's, it's picking other people's brains and actually taking some notes on those books I get from the library and notes on experiments that I do myself. Wow. So what made you start an art notebook? I didn't want it to intrude on my other journal, and it was starting to. I couldn't, for one thing, I couldn't find anything. You know, I would, I would write down this information about using watercolors, and then four months later, I would say, all right, where did I write that thing about using watercolors? And I'd have to go back and back and back through journals, and I just thought... I'm losing this stuff. It's just, it's in among all the writing. And so I figured if I put writing in one book and art in another book, at least I could have a better chance of finding it. And I know you've been, you've been doing these art notebooks for a long time, right? 1978. Wow. (laughs) (laughs) And do you work on the art notebook every day? Uh, The art notebook I've only been doing for about, um, 
seven years. No, I work on the art notebook as I, I find things that interest me. So I'll get a book from the library and I'll go, oh, that's really handy to know. I didn't know that before. And I'll put that in the art journal kind of thing. Um, so it's, it's very sporadic and mostly geared to when a new thing comes along or when something comes along that I say, I'm having trouble with this. I need to make myself a note to see if I can find the answer to this question. Mm-hmm. And you, you've said that you would find it very difficult to give up. I would. A journal. And what, tell me more about that. There's just, it's just such a rich source of ideas. I can go back and, and find things and find all kinds of prompts for my writing and actual details because I tend to write stories in places that I've actually been to, places I've actually lived. And so there was a, about a three-and-a-half-year period between 1982 and 19, the end of 1985 when I was living up in northern Alberta, which is very remote. It would take you an 11-hour drive to get to a big city, you know, sort of thing. And I kept notes about all of that time. And now that I'm writing a book that's set in northern Alberta, I can go back and I can read that and get like the absolute details like you know this this is why it was difficult to get this particular thing in the grocery store for example so the little bitty things so yeah very cool now i'm i i also know that you received a a pretty special retirement gift (laughs) i would love it if you would share what that (laughs) gift was and what you did with it I wanted a really big set of watercolors, intensive, Derwent intensive watercolor pencils. And so I told my coworkers that was what I wanted, and they gave it to me for retirement. And at the time, I was playing with both colored pencils and watercolor pencils, combining colors to make other colors, usually two layers, two pencils working together kind of thing. So there's a formula that you can calculate. If you have 72 pencils, how many two-color combinations can you make? And so I worked the formula out, and it was somewhere over 2,000 sort of thing. So I said, okay, I am going to make 2,000 color samples. And I actually ruled my art notebook into pages to cover however many of those little squares I would need. And then I started in on it, and it was really, really boring. (laughs) And the only thing that kept me going at that, and it took me almost two years, just, okay, I'm going to come back and I'm going to do 12 today, you know, kind of thing, to actually get those 2,000 and some odd colored in. But I did get them colored in, and I now have them as a reference for, um, you know, I'm looking for a brown, but I want a brown with a little bit of a greenish tinge, and then I can go through that, those pages, and I can say, oh, that's not a bad combination to try. That might work. Wow. Gosh, that's a lot of work. (laughs) (laughs) Are you glad you did it? Yes. Would I do it again? No. No. (laughs) I've learned that you can do sample cards. You know, if if you're starting a project and you're thinking to yourself, I kind of like a brown with a little bit of a green in it, then you can play around with three or four different brown-green combinations and have that for that project and then just keep that for future projects. But I don't, I, you know, I, I, my next 
big want is I want a great big box of Prismacolor pencils. And when I get them, I am not doing the sample pages. <laughs> My box, I don't, I don't, I think I have maybe 60 yeah. barrel Prismacolor um, pencils that yeah. I got years and years and years ago. And I, I didn't do all the, you know, combinations, but I did take a piece of paper and make all, you know, draw out a little bit from each of the pencils and write in that pencil the number because they're all numbered. And the, I think I might have written the name. I can't remember. But and I for a while that sheet of paper was in my pencil box. It's yeah. probably still there. Yeah. Uh, but I never refer to it anymore. I always just like draw. Yeah. <laughs> There's a, a saying for writers that there are some pieces of paper you just have to get out of the typewriter, and I suppose now it's the computer printer, um, before you can get any real writing done. And I think that was what, what this exercise was. <laughs> because they were watercolor pencils, is there was no way of really knowing what the color was going to be until you added the water. Yeah. So I think that that helped to keep me going was that mystery that I would put those colors down and I'd go, okay. And then I'd apply the water and I'd go, oh, wow. You know, or, oh, gross. <laughs> Did you apply water to all of those different? Oh, yes. Wow. Which is why I could only work on alternating squares because I didn't want any bleed through. Yeah. So I would have to work on a page like square one, three, five, seven, and then let the water dry and then maybe come back the next day and do two, four, six, eight. Right. So that took a little more time. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Huge, huge project. I'm impressed that you did that. <laughs> So I know you also have an interesting story about using art as a marketing tool for your writing. Yes. What is that story? When I first started seriously writing for profit, I um, took out a local business license. I named a company and so on. I didn't have a book out and I wasn't going to have a book out for at least two years because at that point that was the span between finishing a book and getting it published. But I had to get my name out there into the writing community and into the mystery community. And so there are essentially two ways that I could do it at that point. One was to promote other writers and the internet was just getting going and I didn't have a blog and so on but I did find some ways to promote other authors that I really liked and then the second thing was at that time there were about a dozen mystery conventions that happened over the year about six of them were fairly big conventions and the other six were small little regional conventions but many of them had auctions for charity they would support literacy or they would support violence against uh, or stopping violence against women's programs and so on. And so what I would do is that I would make something to contribute to that auction. And sometimes I would put in somebody else's book that I really liked. And so I often tried to relate it to writing. I would make uh, decorated pen cases, and then there would be some writing pens in them. Or I would make a book bag, or I would make something else. And then that way, people would see my name on the tag when they bought something, and would know that I was a writer and know I was interested in mysteries and so on. 
and I belong, I belong then and still belong to a group called Sisters in Crime, which is a group to promote mystery writing among women. And so there was an online chat room sort of thing, and people would say, hey, I was at such and such convention, and I saw the book bag that you had made. And so it gave them a tangible object that they could relate to my name, and people started knowing who I was. And by the time the book came out, I already had people lined up that I could go to and say, would you do a little review for me, and so on. Wow, so brilliant. Really? Wow, smart. <laughs> I love that. So regarding your your mystery, how, how many have you written now? I've written, I don't know how many I've written. <laughs> I've published five. I have a sixth one that's finished that's at beta readers right now. I'm ready to publish this one. And then I have three that I wrote decades ago, literally decades ago. And fortunately, they've never seen the light of day. But there's some characters in there that I like, and there's half, sort of half a plot in there that I like. And I'm going back and reworking that one right now. So I finished six, seven, eight. I finished nine. And I'm going back and reworking three of those nine. Wow. And are these, they all take place in the same world with the same no. characters? The, the, they're, they're the five that are published, that's a closed set. That's over now. The sixth one that I just finished is set modern day times here in Calgary. And it concerns a folk music club, that there's a family that runs this folk music club. And they know a lot of secrets about musicians and about the music world. And um, one day those secrets start to unravel and somebody dies. <laughs> Well, I'll look forward to reading that one. What's the title of that one? Carrying the Blood. Mm. <laughs> a line from an Ian Tyson song. Tyson is a, a local singer. He lives about, I don't know, 30 miles, 40 miles south of here. And um, he has a song called The Steel Dust Line, which is about breeding cutting horses. And there's a line in there about carrying the blood. And blood is important in this story, not only because it's a mystery, but also because of the bloodline of certain songs and the bloodline of this particular family, that there's some secrets in, in their family background. And it's, that's what it relates to. Mm. Where, where, do you, where do your books, where do you sell your books? Well, my original series was through a library publisher in the States, and so they were vended into libraries rather than into bookstores, and so the easiest place to find them is to ask your local library, and if they don't have them, they can get it on interlibrary loan. And I'm going to go with uh, an e-publishing for the folk music book, and then if that goes well, I'll probably uh, do e-publishing strictly from now on out. One thing I want to ask you, Sharon, is... As somebody who does lots of different creative things, like me, I'm curious about your relationship to your different creative things. Like, where is there overlap to, as far as how it feeds you? Where is there difference? I think one of the really big things for me is that my art is not, the, the writing is commercial, but the art is not commercial. So I have 
you know, I got a um, commission one time to make a baby quilt. That's about as commercial as it gets. And it really gives me a lot of freedom because I don't have to worry about the customer. And so I can do whatever feels good. You know, I want to experiment with this material or I want to try this way out project or whatever. And it's strictly mine. I don't have to worry about, is this going to go on the shelf? Is this going to sell? How am I going to market it? So on and so forth. And that's one of the really big freedoms that, that feed me. And then there's also, I guess if I have a style and my husband and I kind of joke about this, we call it shaker bling. (laughs) Because I really love the shaker idea of very simple things like furniture construction or box construction or whatever. So I like really simple but then I'm not above putting a few beads on it or a couple of crystals or some wild colors. So if I would make a a really simple shift dress, for example, nine times out of 10, it's probably going to be out of wild African fabric or it's going to be in an, an electric orange or something like that. So I like that combination of a really basic, really well-constructed underpinning and then decorate it. Mm, cool. I so resonate with what you said about your art being the non-commercial creative expression that you have. That is something that I just cannot stress strongly enough or too strongly. I believe everybody needs to have that. Anybody Mm -hmm. who is endeavoring to make money from their creative thing, you have to also have some creative outlet that is completely unrelated to whether or not, you know, it has no, it makes no difference whether or not any money comes from that because it's, it's a really different thing. It's a really different mindset. It's to me, it's like a completely different animal creating for, a very specific commercial purpose, creating to please other people as opposed to creating just because you want to. Yeah. And I I think that we still get those societal pressures of, oh, and, and you know, I think we've both heard people say this to artists, that is so great. You ought to sell those. Absolutely. And as if making it's not enough, unless you tack on that commercial piece, then that validates you as an artist because you're making money off of it. And I I think too many people still have that idea. Yeah, I absolutely agree. And it is really interesting. I mean, we live in a culture, a society that places a huge value on money and on, you know, commercial viability, right? That's kind of what gives you the stamp of authentic, I don't know, authenticity is not the right word, but yeah, yeah, the stamp of like, validation, right? You are a valid, whatever, X artist, whatever, whatever you want to musician, writer, whatever, if you're earning income from it, and the more income you earn, the more valid you are. And one of the things that I really appreciate about you, and other people like you is that you are creating, yes, you are creating stuff that has a commercial, um, you know, commercial purpose. Mm -hmm. And you are also creating purely to feed your own creative spirit. And that makes such a difference in life when we do that. We all need that. 
Yeah, I just it. I'm just so fortunate to be able to do this. I just uh, a while ago I had to do an inventory of my workspace for insurance purposes because we have a, a renter's policy kind of thing, and I was startled at what my art space was worth. When I, you know, I literally counted how many brushes do I have, and okay, I'm going to assign an average value of X amount to a brush, and that comes out this much, and I have this many art books and so on, and I was stunned at, at what I had, and I just, I'm so fortunate to have this and to have a really supportive husband who uh, just thinks anything I want to work on is great. God bless those supportive spouses and partners. Absolutely. <laughs> I have one of those too. And I, I am, am one of those for my husband when he yeah. does his creative stuff. I mean, of course, that would be kind of yeah. pathetic if I weren't. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, it's not a given. We were talking about this earlier today and I was, was thanking him for being so supportive. And he said, it's what any husband would do. And I said, no, it's not. I said, I know women who are creative, whose husbands say, I'm going to go watch the football game. You have a good time and have no clue what they're even working on. Or they say, what, why are you wasting your time on that? Mm -hmm. Why aren't you, you doing the store and buy it? Yeah, or why aren't you doing X, Y, Z, or why aren't you doing the thing that makes money or whatever, instead of championing and encouraging and supporting what is going to lead to greater happiness and mental health and physical health and <laughs> a much better quality of life, right? A yes. happier, happier spouse. <laughs> well, Sharon, what, what are you working on next? What's your big project right now? My husband... Um, teaches fencing. And he doesn't teach modern fencing. He teaches 16th century fencing. He is getting an award later in this fall, and he has to appear for the award in a 16th century doublet and trunk hose. Yes. So I am going back and reading up on medieval tailoring, and we are in the process of creating this outfit for him to wear. And that pretty much is our life until later in the fall. Oh my gosh, that is so cool. Yeah, we think so too. <laughs> I cannot wait to see pictures of that, man. <laughs> I hope you will share them. Yeah. And I've got, you know, a little, the, 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 you know, the 12 projects that are usually going on in the background kind of thing <laughs> right. <laughs> here today and a couple of stitches here today and so on. I work that way too. I, I usually have multiple projects in various stages of completion. <laughs> <laughs> and once in a while, I'll pull one out of the box and go, now, what was this supposed to be? <laughs> Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, Sharon, it's just been such a treat to talk to you and get a little peek inside your creative process and your history. And thank you for joining me. You're welcome. Thank you so much for asking me. Oh, yeah. It's a total treat. And I will see you over in the Creative Sandbox. Okay. Looking forward to it. So that was my conversation with Sharon Wildwind. I hope you enjoyed it. Now it is time for something Cool. And this week's something cool is really big. It's actually an event that 
is something I'd been wanting to attend for years, but never been never managed to go until this year, actually just this past weekend. This week, something cool is Maker Fair. Last year, I wanted to go so, so, so badly, but it was the same weekend as my open studio, which was so frustrating. And if you want to hear about my experience with open studio, last week, I did an entire episode all about my insights and kind of revelations about well, my entire open studio experience. So check that out. Episode 109. Yeah, I learned a lot <laughs> all about the intersection of art and commerce and um, authentic voice and so many other things. Kind of an intense episode. Anyway, this year, my dad, who got a degree in mechanical engineering and a master's in mechanical engineering, went to Caltech and then Stanford. And uh, anyway, was a consultant for many years in the high tech world. He got tickets for me and my husband to Maker Faire. And thankfully, it was not the weekend of my open studio. So the three of us went together. I was so excited to finally get to go. And it was really amazing I I can appreciate why people get tickets to go for the entire weekend. You can get a one-day ticket or a full weekend ticket. And I thought, weekend ticket? Why would you go on a weekend ticket? Well, this thing is enormous. There are so many things to see. There's way more to see than you can possibly see in one day. And we, we, we got there before the gates opened at 10. And let's see, I think we left around 1.30 or 2. I can't remember. And we were fully cooked. <laughs> we just were like, okay, we can't absorb anything else. We're just like, done. So yeah, a weekend ticket would make total sense. So what is Maker Fair? Well, it's sponsored by Make Magazine, which I do not have a subscription to, although it's certainly an intriguing thing that I'm quite interested in getting a subscription to. Maker Fair started in the Bay Area, where I live, in 2006. So it's been going for 11 years now. And there are now two flagship Maker Fairs, one in the Bay Area and one in New York. And in addition to that, there are over 100... I think it's, at last count, there was 119. It might be more than that now. Independently produced mini Maker Fairs and 14 featured Maker Fairs all over the world. And here is what it says on the about page of the Maker Fair website, which is makerfair.com, fair with an E at the end. Maker Fair is primarily designed to be forward-looking, showcasing makers who are exploring new forms and new technologies. But it's not just for the novel in technical fields. Maker Fair features innovation and experimentation across the spectrum of science, engineering, art, performance, and craft. Maker Fair is a gathering 
of fascinating, curious people who enjoy learning and who love sharing what they can do. It's a venue for makers to show examples of their work and interact with others about it. Many makers say they have no place to share what they do. DIY, do-it-yourself, is often invisible in our communities, taking place in shops, garages, and on kitchen tables. It's typically out of the spotlight of traditional art or science or craft events. Maker Faire makes visible these projects and ideas that we don't encounter every day. So what I loved about our day at Maker Faire is all the really arty stuff everywhere. There's this amazing intersection of engineering and art all over Maker Faire that really, really makes my toes tingle. There's also a lot of stuff that I'm not excited about. There's a lot of computery kinds of stuff that meh, doesn't turn me on at all. But there's all kinds of interesting sculptural things and um, vehicle, like there were these people driven vehicles, like there was this gigantic bug thing that people were sitting in and making move by, by moving these levers that they were holding in their hands, sitting in these seats, uh, several feet up in the air. And the moving by moving the levers, they were controlling these insect, gigantic insect legs that had rubber on the bottom of them, these insect feet. And by maneuvering the feet through, through how they moved the levers, they were propelling this vehicle throughout the fair. I don't know, it's really hard to describe. I'll post a picture of it in the show notes. So there were things like that all over the place vehicles and and sculptures that emitted flame and just there were just like all kinds of amazing things to see all over the fair and it was spread throughout just acres and acres and acres of fairgrounds also there are all kinds of events that were happening throughout the day and the one event that i really really wanted to see that we got to see was called i think it was called the the life-sized mouse trap I think that's what it was called. If you remember the game, the board game, Mousetrap, <laughs> this was an enormous, like, humongous <laughs> version of that game. And it was, I think there were five performers who had spent five days setting this thing up they tra- I guess they travel around the country doing this. And they, you know, they're performers, so they, they spend a good chunk of time, maybe... Oh, there goes an alarm. <laughs> they spend about 10, 10 minutes or 15 minutes or something prepping the crowd, and there's music, and and they... they <laughs> it's basically this Rube Goldberg setup where they drop a bowling ball at the start of this uh, enormous Rube Goldberg device. And it goes through through this entire device <laughs> over like, I don't know, a, an acre of or a quarter of an acre or something of um, 
of land and it it looks like there's no way that it's possibly going to work but ultimately it it goes around different things and it makes levers go and it makes another bowling ball drop and and ultimately it makes a, a huge ton weight drop down into the bed of a truck and it's impossible to describe in words but it was really really fun to watch and i really wanted to see it and we got to see that so Anyway, it's impossible to describe how many wondrous things there are to see at Maker Faire. So that is this week's Something Cool. That's it. That's a wrap. Thank you so much for joining me today. If you are getting value out of this podcast, the best way to thank me is to tell your friends. And Super, super, super important. Hop on over to iTunes and leave a rating and review. It's been a while since I've had a new review over in the US iTunes store. And if you are the first person to leave me a review in the US iTunes store, if you send me an email with your iTunes ID so I can figure out who you are, Uh, I will send you a special surprise. So leave me a review in the iTunes store. If you need step-by-step instructions, just go to livecreativenow.com slash iTunes hyphen review. That's livecreativenow.com slash iTunes dash review. Then shoot me an email, livecreativenow.com slash contact. Send me an email with your iTunes ID, so I can find your review (laughs) and know that you actually sent me one. And if you leave me, send me your mailing address, I will send you a surprise. You told me totally make my day, but even more importantly, you will actually be making a difference for other people because those reviews are actually how people find the show. When podcasts get lots of good reviews, that is how they pop up in people's searches. So it really makes a very big difference. And I would be eternally grateful. So go leave a rating and review and really type in some sentences. It could be one or two sentences. It does not have to be long. I will read your review on the air in a future episode, if it's a good one, and I'll send you a surprise in snail mail. So that is it. Until next time. Thanks again for joining me today and go get creating. Subscribe at livecreativenow.com.